It's Saturday morning with your family, and you're in charge of breakfast. Everybody wants their egg cooked a different way, of course, but all agree on bacon as the side. But the eggs will be no problem, because you own Lodge's cast iron bacon and egg griddle. It has a divided three-compartment design and a pour spout on the griddle side to help you drain and save that valuable bacon grease. This made-to-order breakfast will be easy. As the oldest American manufacturer of cast iron cookware, Lodge knows a thing or two about quality. Lodge's bacon and egg griddle, the third and latest item in the Lodge Cast Iron Legacy Series, may be purchased online at lodgecastiron.com. For their commitment to quality cookware and their longtime support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Okay, let's see a show of hands. How many people think molasses and sorghum are the same thing? Raise your hands. I don't care if you're in the car. Like, just raise your hand up. Keep one hand on the wheel. Okay, there are no hands here in our recording tent, but we see those hands up in other places. Well, to be fair, in syrup form, molasses and sorghum can be similar in color and both have a bit of a bite. But that's where the similarities end because molasses is a byproduct of making sugar cane into sugar while sorghum is a grain with an ancient past and a bright future in the South and beyond. You can pour sorghum syrup, which some people confusingly call sorghum molasses, on a biscuit. But you can also pop it, serve it like couscous, substitute it for wheat in bread making. Or heck, you can power a tractor with it because, yes, sorghum can be used to make ethanol. But know this too, sugarcane bagasse can be used to make ethanol too, so let's just... (laughs) It's a circle. It is. Here's the other thing about sorghum. It's really pretty. We've used it before at SFA events. It's a gorgeous, deep maroon-colored berry, way prettier on a fall table than wheat. You're probably eating more sorghum than you realize, but not as much as you're going to crave once Wilson Sayer tells us this story. I'm Melissa Hall. I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. At a big grocery store chain in Raleigh, North Carolina, sorghum syrup is nowhere to be found. Not near the sugars or the maple and corn syrups where you would expect to find the thick brown syrup that often tops biscuits. Agave. Splendor. Stevia. Nope. No sorghum. Sorghum syrup is made by boiling the juice from sorghum cane. The flavor is a bit like molasses, only earthier. But over one aisle, I find the sorghum. Not where most people in the South would look for it, and not in a jar. Multi-grain Cheerios. Ingredients, whole grain oats, whole grain corn, whole grain sorghum. Sorghum grain. And there's sorghum flour in many things. Here's a all-purpose flour mix that's gluten-free. Rice flour, potato starch, and white sorghum. And here's a cracker. Artisan muffins. Brown rice, almonds, sorghum flour. It's like this super grain. Lots of iron, protein, it's gluten-free, rich in antioxidants, not genetically modified. But unlike rice, corn, wheat, barley, even quinoa, sorghum is not exactly a household name. Four hours west of Raleigh, there's an exception to that. 
In Asheville, Ashley Shanti of Benny on Eagle incorporates sorghum into a dish far more interesting and complex than a bowl of cereal. These are sorghum berries that have already been uh, kind of cooked down like rice that we like to uh, have them bursting from the holes. Um, just kind of lends to the creaminess of the dish. Sorghum berries, or what some call the sorghum grain, grow out of the top of the sorghum plant. It's a crop cultivated in warm climates like parts of Africa, the Middle East, also parts of Australia and Asia. In many of these regions, the use of sorghum to make syrup is as unfamiliar to their diets as sorghum grain is to ours. Shanti cooked her sorghum berries down to a delicious texture, like Israeli couscous or an al dente noodle. What I'm doing right now basically is just doing a bowl of sorghum berries. And then we have uh, what we call sorghum jus, which is the liquid, the byproduct of uh, cooking sorghum. So it's just the, the basically sorghum water. And then um, we reduce that with sorghum syrup and then a little splash of a sorghum vinegar because we do sorghum vinegar in-house too. So it is a very sorghum forward dish. <laughs> this dish is similar to one they have on the brunch menu. She tops it with sprouted sorghum and popped sorghum, which looks exactly like miniature popcorn. Sorghum like what, four different ways? The sorghum grain just, it's got a lot of flavor in it. Earthiness and then the, the syrup adds some sweetness. The sprouts have a little funk, sourness. So I feel like it kind of hits all the notes. And then the pop sorghum adds, of course, some crunchy texture there for you. Mm. So. For Shanti, sorghum is a nostalgic flavor that tastes like her home in Virginia Beach. Sorghum syrup was always a thing uh, growing up. I can remember uh, my grandma dipping her biscuits in sorghum. In Shanti's restaurant, sorghum syrup shows up on her menu in the form of sorghum cream cheese on grits, as a sorghum mustard with a cowpea fritter, and maple sorghum syrup on pancakes. But she's really excited about the sorghum berries that ground the dish she's whipped up. The food that we do right now, I feel like, is expressive of Appalachian cuisine and um, also just kind of bringing light and attention to a lot of the West African influences that exist within, within this cuisine. And sorghum is one of those connections between what we've come to know as Southern food and the foodways brought to America by enslaved Africans. Sorghum grain remains a staple in diets in countries like Nigeria, which is one of its largest producers. Soul food, what, what people think of soul food is the food of the South, um, and the food that um, has derived from West African influences and Caribbean influences and all of these different things that have just come, kind of come together. Um, we have such a diverse culture and background that we have to start to recognize that a lot of these regional cuisines are influenced by other cultures. Much of the knowledge of how to grow grain sorghum in the U.S., though, was lost as other, more profitable crops came to replace it. Most of the sorghum that's grown now in the country is for animal feed. So grain sorghum as a food for people in the U.S. largely disappeared until a few years ago. I think that it's something that is kind of a lost crop. Um, it's finding its its place in America, I think, is, is really great. And I think that we should embrace it. Um, I think the knowledge of where it came from is super important, too. Um, and I would love for people to be able to, you know, find uh, some connectivity with that. 
Not long ago, she actually tried to grow a bit of sorghum grain as an experiment in her backyard. It is so hard to harvest, easy to grow. Uh, difficult to harvest though. Um, did you eat any of it? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, it was it was a learning experience because I don't I don't think that I I harvested it correctly. It didn't taste like the sorghum that you know Anson Mills sells us. Anson Mills, which is a sponsor of the Southern Foodways Alliance, actually put grain sorghum on Ashley Shanti's radar. Anson Mills is housed in a small, anonymous industrial building tucked behind a car wash in downtown Columbia, South Carolina. The mill's workers and machines produce some of the South's most coveted grain, rice, flour, and grits. That's the focus. But Anson has also branched out to other grains, like sorghum. Anson Mills is obsessed with producing the best grain possible. So even in the sweltering South Carolina heat inside the mill, You'll notice it's quite cool in here now, but we haven't actually started to pre-chill the mills because we run at minus 10 and minus 50 in this room. Yeah, it gets really cold. Minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. To minus 50, yes. Glenn Roberts, one of the mill's founders, is very serious about his grain. The cold temperatures and the CO2 canisters that are attached to the walls work together in an attempt to keep the newly harvested crop alive. The idea is they freeze their grain as soon as it's harvested to keep all the nutrients and flavors intact, sort of cryogenically freezing it. In Appalachia, in the South, the American South, the best grits and cornmeal always come after new crop when it's really, really cold and the corn's freezing and it's the first meal out of the mill that's the best. And so everything done at Anson is done by hand. They need to freeze something. They have dozens of little chest freezers like you get from Sears. If they need to dry out the grain, They use a row of normal white enamel kitchen stoves like you'd find in someone's home. The mill is filled with bags full of thousands of pounds of grain. And in the back, in their gluten-free zone, is the mill they use to process sorghum grain. We produce double O sorghum flour out of this, and we also produce cracked uh, sorghum grits. We produce parch and roasted meal. We produce sorghum samp, which is like huge grits. Right? And so we do that on this mill, too. Robert's introduction to sorghum was sort of by accident. My third rice crop on the Carolina coast here in South Carolina uh, went away when the rice got about two feet tall. It was there, and I went away for a couple of weeks and came back, and it wasn't there anymore. I just had glassy water. And I freaked out and went, what the hell? So he went and got a friend of his who happened to be a rice scientist to show him this empty field army worms. They ate the rice just below the water. Nothing really to worry about this season. The rice would come back. But how do you prevent more harmful attacks of the pest in the future? Sorghum. You run sorghum before the rice crop in that field and you won't have army worm attacks of this magnitude. So you won't have to freak out when you come back and see a glassy mirror instead of a rice field. And that's my first introduction. That was 20 some years ago. Anson Mills started growing it regularly made some sweet sorghum syrup from it, and eventually decided to try and mill some flour and find other uses for the grain. And uh, we were popping sorghum by mistake. Some fell on the tractor cowling, and the tractor cowling was screeching hot, and I saw it pop, and I'm going, eh, that pot, I wonder what that is. It looks like popcorn. So they started playing around with the plant leaving it in the field late into the season to see if the berries tasted better or made better flour for bread. 
While Anson Mills does grow and sell their sorghum as flowers and unmilled berries, it's still somewhat of an experiment. What we're doing uh, in our feed system is way, 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 way too narrow. You can't do beans, corn, beans, corn, wheat, corn, wheat, corn. You have to diversify. Anson Mills is very concerned about the effect of changing environments and weather patterns. The mill has set a five-year goal to figure out what the next steps are, because at the rate of weird things happening to their crops, they're worried they won't be able to grow much in a few years. For the third year in a row, we've uh, salted up one of our best research rice fields that's never had salt until the last three years. So if we look five years ahead and go, what is our emphasis? Sorghum is the most drought-tolerant crop we have. Robert says reconnecting with foodways of where so many of our crops come from, the native home of grains like sorghum, can be helpful in that journey. The oldest farming system in the world is where? Well, what's the cradle of civilization? Where would the plants have the most experience with humans? And it's in Africa. And sorghum is emblematic of that. So we're also talking about biosecurity and the future of health and food. So how does sorghum fit into all this? It is the grain of the future because it's drought tolerant, water tolerant, salt tolerant. It grows when the ground salts. We can put barley and sorghum back in the ground and make a crop. The challenge, however, is Anson Mills produces very little sorghum, some 300 acres or so. You can't buy sorghum berries from most grocery stores. You won't find it on the shelves next to rice or quinoa. Yet... Yet, because a group of researchers less than 100 miles northeast of Anson Mills is trying to figure out how to not only make sorghum viable as a food source in the future, but attractive to farmers to actually grow. When we come back, Wilson Sayer introduces us to crop scientists working to help sorghum take root. There was a joke there. But first... Maker's Mark Bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Makers Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. When you drive up to the test fields at Clemson University's outpost in Florence, South Carolina, there are rows and rows of all different kinds of crops, but no sorghum at first. What all is grown here? Uh, All the major field crops, cotton, peanut, soybean, maize. Turf grass is another big crop that's experimented with here. Steve Kresovich is one of the country's top sorghum experts. His fields are in the back of this giant farm-like complex. There's rows and rows of sorghum. At the top of each stalk is a head full of round seeds, or berries. They're about the size of BBs, some white, some red, others brown. The plants are different heights. Some look like they're thriving, others a bit sickly. The whole field just reflects the diversity of sorghum that by height, by grain quality, by disease resistance, just about any trait you might be interested in from an agricultural production perspective. Kresovich got into studying sorghum as a source for ethanol production and then came to understand all the kinds of things sorghum could be used for. Food, sweetener, animal feed. And that opportunity seemed especially rich in the South. We need more than just 
um, standard commodities or one or two commodities that are grown everywhere. Kresovich is really interested in figuring out what profitable, environmentally sustainable food crops farmers could grow. Changing climates have made growing some of the standard crops, like corn, more difficult. Sorghum is incredibly drought-tolerant, versatile, and certain varieties are very nutritious. It's good at removing carbon from the atmosphere, and it doesn't take a lot out of the soil or need much from it. In fact, this farmland doesn't look like soil. It looks like brown sand. There's no organic matter in the soils here. The ocean was here at some time. That's the sand was deposited. So look at that. I don't see any organic matter. That's sort of, it's almost like you're in a sand trap at a golf course. Yeah. Looks like I'm at a beach. Yeah. And how, how many miles are we from the coast? Hey, how, how close are we are to Myrtle Beach? 40 miles? You just drive fast, it seems. <laughs> The fast driver is Zach Brenton, a former student and now a colleague of Kresovich's. He started his own commercial seed company focused entirely on sorghum, the first of its kind in the South. And I have to point out your, your hat says sorghum, the smart choice. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's the smart choice. Kresovich's passion for sorghum and its potential has spawned a whole new generation of sorghum enthusiasts like Brenton. Brenton is making a bet, professionally and financially, that sorghum will be a big part of the future of commercial farming in the South. His company, Carolina Seed Systems, is a public-private partnership with the university. They're breeding a few varieties of sorghum from the thousands of varieties out in the world, from as far as Africa. But these new types are specifically for farmers in this region. So, like, everything is a different different variety just but they're all they can all cross they're all in the same species they're just been selected in different environments so each individual line in here was probably developed in a certain village for a certain reason and so it's our job as geneticists as plant breeders to figure out what traits that we like and what traits to get rid of and that is not an easy process over the past eight years brenton and his fellow researchers have taken thousands of varieties of sorghum and asked what do we want in the ideal sorghum plant so they asked bakers and brewers and chefs and also livestock farmers, what do you want out of a sorghum? They began breeding and experimenting with different varieties. Uh, and you can see, I mean, this is, you have the, these beautiful green leaves next to these horrible disease-infected lines, right? So this is all, in, this is a fungus infection and then this is a healthy plant. You know, they, do not, they don't have this, this disease in West Texas and in drier environments, but we have it here in the humidity. Most sorghum grown in the U.S. today is produced in the Southwest, specifically Texas on up to Nebraska. And so this process of making a commercially viable seed specifically for the South is a relatively new endeavor. We want to produce a high-quality sorghum that is meant here for the Southeast, not to West Texas, not in Kansas, but specifically here. So um, the challenges here are a lot different than you would have in the high plains with eight inches of water per year. You know, the farm size here is 500 to 1,000 acres, not 10,000 acres. So Brenton is getting the variety of sorghum ready for what a chef may want. And then his company also has to make it something the farmer can plant, a crop that's high yielding, resistant to diseases or pests, and something they can actually profit on. If you don't understand the challenges of the grower, and more importantly, if there's not a marketing opportunity for the crop, um, 
then all this hard work that we spend in the field and making, uh, understanding the genetics and, and all of that um, is, is really, you know, uh, all for naught, so to speak. Rick Boyles is a professor at Clemson who focuses on sorghum and works with Zach to produce new strains. Boyles remembers a few years ago, there was huge demand from China for sorghum. And so farmers gave it a shot. We also had something come in called the yellow sugarcane aphid, which is a became a really big pest in sorghum. Well, it came in at a time where a lot of growers were growing sorghum for the first year, and they didn't have that much management information to, to fall back on. And then, oh yeah, a new pest wants to come in. And and then, you know, everybody was trying to play catch up and figure out what in the world to, to spray or how to control it, so on and so forth. That's why the kind of research he and Brenton work on is so important. You can kill the future of a new crop with one bad season. But Brenton thinks this sorghum experiment will work because it's filling this hole that's existed in the South for years. You know, the former tobacco areas of the I-95, the Carolinas, Virginia. Um, you know, when tobacco pulled out, there was never really a replacement crop. What Carolina Seed Systems is doing is very different from what Glenn Roberts at Anson Mills is doing. Anson Mills is growing heirloom varieties, or old, maybe even original strains of sorghum brought over from Africa. It's got the stories of who saved the seed and passed it down through the generations. But for a lot of commercial farmers, growing heirloom crops that can be less hardy or resistant to disease or don't produce the highest yields, that just doesn't work for them. I would say those heirloom varieties that we grow, and then, I mean, I'm a part of it too. I love the foodie thing and going to the chef. I also look at those fields and say, they're not producing sustainably. Like, how are you going to feed a world on this line that only produces a fourth of it and it still requires the same amount of nitrogen and the diesel fuel to go over it with the tractor? From thousands of varieties, Brenton's gone to market with five types of sorghum that he's bred with all of these things in mind. He points to one of them in the field. White seed tan plant, so it, it makes that nice white pearly flower. Um, so it, it's considered a food grade line. This took years of selection and testing, right, to get to this point. We want to breed to where it's going, not where it is today. And this is just the start of a big effort to get sorghum, this grain that's drought-tolerant, gluten-free, nutritious, and now specifically designed for the South, out into the ground and onto our plates. So tomorrow, expect sorghum not just in your cereal bowl. Wilson Sayer reported and produced this episode. Danielle Irby is our editor. We also thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy, the podcast, and Gravy, the journal, which we hope you read, Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Laster serves as our publisher for that same panoply of media. I'm Melissa Hall. I'm John T. Edge. Enjoying the gravy we just poured in your ear? Join us March 28th in Birmingham, Alabama as Patrick Q author of The Last Days of Haute Cuisine, explores the work and influence of the restaurantless chef. Visit southernfoodways.org to buy your tickets and to learn more. While you're there, make a donation. Your dollars help us stir up more gravy.